We're recording. Okay. Welcome to the program. Um, we've had a very interesting cross-section of people that have registered, so I'll try to make the program relevant to both uh, professionals, uh, consumers, individuals, insurance people, accountants, attorneys. It's a very broad group. Um, I apologize. It's, it's, it's a little bit tough to uh, try to target uh, the comments at a level that's appropriate for everyone, so we'll do the best we can. Um, Again, I had announced earlier, and just uh, for those that have not received it, uh, LawEasy.com, www.lawEasy.com, LawEasy.com has the PowerPoint, a Word version of the handout, and a reprint of an article from Limeberg Services that was published last night with an analysis that I did of the new tax law. So if you did not get the materials, they're all available there. Hang on one second, we have a technical issue. Okay, we're back in action. Sorry about that. Uh, we have some general disclaimers we're going to just skip through. Um, the 2012 American Tax Relief Act, or by the acronym ATRA, is one of the most profound and significant changes to the estate planning uh, world in, in well more than a decade. And we're going to talk about the profound impact that at least I believe it, it has had on not only uh, consumers, taxpayers, but on the professions that serve them as well. Um, and even if you are a consumer, the comments that we'll make on the impact on professionals will be relevant to you because it will affect uh, how you plan and how you work with your various advisors. Um, the, the obvious, I'm going to state, but that is what is so profound about this tax bill. The $5 million exemption, and I don't think really anybody imagined this being a permanent um, uh, exemption amount. That exemption amount is now permanent. Uh, I think most of us thought it would be $3.5 million. Some thought it would be lower. Most of us really weren't fully sure. But now with a $5 million permanent exemption, this is the first time in well more than a decade that we have a permanent anything with the estate tax. Portability is now permanent. Portability is the ability of a surviving spouse to benefit from the exemption amount from the prior deceased spouse. So much of the planning that practitioners would use, uh, a bypass trust, dividing assets so it could be funded on the first death, uh, in some sense is no longer necessary, at least for purposes of capturing the uh, exemption amount. And the key difference from where we are today and where I believe we were in 2010 uh, when a major tax bill was passed then is for the first time these changes are permanent. When uh, the 2001 Tax uh, Act was uh, uh, passed, the changes, while very favorable for those trying to do planning, the increase in the exemption and so on, they all had sunset provisions, 2010 sunset provisions. And it was impossible for taxpayers to really have any certainty what was coming down the pike. And even though the numbers are the same as uh, 2010, the $5 million uh, exemption and the same exemption amount for gift estate and generations giving transfer tax purposes, the fact that it's now permanent changes the whole picture. Now, most practitioners may very well say, gee, it's only permanent until Congress changes it again. But I think that the, the major impact on planning is that I don't believe that most consumers, taxpayers, are going to 
be concerned in any significant way, with one exception we're going to talk about in, in some depth later, with the fact that this may yet be changed. I believe most people are going to seize on the permanency of this, and I think it's going to dramatically impact what happens. Very quickly, I'm just going to comment on a couple of the other changes that the uh, 2012 Act, uh, ATRA, has created, because I want to stay focused on really the phenomenal impact that I believe this permanent exemption and a permanent existence of uh, portability will have on planning, and most significantly, the permanent $5 million gift exemption. Uh, the Act has made permanent uh, a whole range of GST, generation skipping transfer tax benefits. Many tax professionals had worried about whether or not some of these uh, uh, rules or benefits that we had pretty much relied on for quite some time were going to disappear and what the impact would be, and lots of very bright people spent time sort of trying to think through what we would do if. Well, those worries are over. Conservation easements, um, uh, state tax deferral for uh, estates that have a significant portion of their assets in close-sale businesses, uh, and special use valuation for farm and, and real estate used in close-sale businesses, all have had some, some minor favorable tweaks that uh, for the taxpayer's effect it can be very beneficial. Um, portability, uh, there was an issue as to whether or not privity uh, would apply. Uh, the example three uh, has now been resolved. Uh, but the main thing that I think most taxpayers are concerned about is the fact that portability is now permanent. Uh, IRAs, there's some additional flexibility to make donations to charity. I just can't fathom why Congress just doesn't make this permanent forever. It's a great way to help charity, and so much of the laws uh, that have been and are enacted have been detrimental to charity. It would be great if they just made this one thing at least permanent. Um, so there's an opportunity again this year to make donations to charities, and there's some special rules for those that... Uh, take action uh, fairly quickly to count this from last year. Um, each time we change topics or move on to a new topic, I have what I call a divider slide just to visually kind of break up the presentation. So you'll see this slide with the uh, little comical uh, uh, character uh, each time we change slides just to sort of help you focus. Uh, again, I think the real issue with uh, ATRA, it's a game changer. I know I'm repeating what I said, but I think this is the most important aspect of what's happened and why it's so different from 2010. These rules are now permanent. And yes, Congress could revisit them and change them again, but I, I don't really think that's the case. But whether it is or it isn't, I don't think very many taxpayers are going to be willing to bet uh, the cost of more sophisticated planning or incurring or living with the complexity of more sophisticated planning on the what if if it was changed. And I think this is a dramatic difference. 2010, 2011, 2012, no taxpayer really felt any comfort or confidence with what the government might do next. And plenty of people were quite concerned that with a million dollar exemption and a 55% rate possible in the deficit, that very well may have come about. And that would have certainly have decimated what they spent a lifetime earning. I don't think those worries are there anymore, other than for the, the wealthiest of the wealthy, and we'll talk about that. Um, so I think that, that fear factor, the mistrust, has now been dissipated for the vast majority of even wealthy taxpayers. And I don't think most taxpayers are going to frankly care about the federal estate tax as being a mere hypothetical. Um, I think, and it may sound kind of uh, uh, radical, but I think that what has now been created for the vast majority of Americans even state-of-state tax, state-of-state tax, which now uh, exists in approximately 20-plus states uh, that have decoupled from the federal estate tax system, I think that is optional. Connecticut is the, is the big exception, and we're going to talk about that. So again, it's a game-changer. Um, 
I think planning for all but the wealthiest of taxpayers needs to be rethought completely, and we're going to go through a whole host of examples of that. I think that so often as practitioners, and, and for those that are taxpayers listening, you know, it's very difficult to change your mindset and your thought pattern when you're used to thinking and handling things in a certain way for more than a decade. Um, you know, it, it's hard to get your head around, is, is it now really new? But I really do believe that for the vast majority of wealthy taxpayers, planning obviously is still very relevant, but I think there are going to be a lot of very different um, constructs and approaches to what planning should be. And I think a lot of the standard planning, like the uh, divide assets 50-50 and have the husband and wife in a marital, uh, in a family, in a nuclear family, uh, fund a bypass trust on first death, I'm not sure that really makes sense for most taxpayers. I'm not saying I wouldn't have those provisions in a will or revocable trust, but I really don't think that's optimal planning for a lot of different reasons for a lot of people, and I think that needs to be talked about in the planning process. For the very wealthy people, I think not only should they continue planning using many, if not all, of the same techniques that we've historically used, but I think for the very wealthy, I think this is, is this ATRA, this 2012 Act, is a, a, a grace period. It's a, a little reprieve from the t December 31 deadline and we'll talk more about what I think needs to be done because I think there's a lot more ugly potential news for the very wealthy. Just as another example of the game changer, I think the use of life insurance will remain critical in planning, but in many different ways. Um, many families that had an estate of well under $10 million bought life insurance, survivorship insurance, to pay an estate tax. I don't think that is a... a relevant use in many cases, certainly not for federal estate tax, if those taxpayers will not be subject to estate tax. So what should be done with that insurance? I think there's some very interesting and creative planning ideas that can help clients, and that's something we're going to talk about a lot. A lot of the basic tools or uh, planning approaches that we've all used for years, for decades or more, um, can be reapplied or, or, or transformed into something that works under the new paradigm. But it's, again, a different perspective. Let's take a moment now and talk about a couple of the changes that I think affect a lot of taxpayers. And this will be, and, and the, the paradigm I'm going to use or the, the, the sequence I'm going to use we're going to talk about, and, and the names um, really only have meaning in the context or relative to the uh, exemption levels uh, that the new act has created. So I'm going to use the reference of wealthy taxpayers or moderate wealth taxpayers, rather, for those that are uh, could be quite wealthy but not subject to the estate tax, the federal estate tax, uh, at all. So for a married couple, that could be a $10 million estate. They're not subject to the estate tax. We may call those moderate wealth, but certainly below that level. I'm going to refer to the wealthy uh, or high net worth or ultra high net worth uh, client or taxpayer as being the person that is still clearly subject to the estate tax in spite of the new high exemption amount. And those in between we'll talk about as being potentially high net worth. And those, that category, that in-between category, will also include those that are um, 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 potentially subject to a state estate tax. And we'll talk about that as well. So let's talk about some changes that affect all these categories. Uh, family partnerships, limited liability companies have been nearly ubiquitous in, in, in estate planning almost uh, uh, I, I can't say everybody has one, but certainly a very significant number of, of, of taxpayers that uh, had any degree of wealth 
have, have had FLPs or LLCs, whether they're used to hold real estate investments, uh, uh, business interests, uh, even family uh, holding companies to hold investment in other assets to consolidate and provide asset protection and so on. And certainly uh, a, a motivating factor for many was the potential for discounts from a gift and estate tax perspective. Many taxpayers may have a knee-jerk reaction because they always found distasteful any legal formalities, and certainly included in that would be uh, the formalities of properly signing things and doing things in entity format, uh, prorated distributions, all the things you need to make an FLP or an LLC work has been something that has always been viewed as a, a, a hassle and nuisance and unpleasantry uh, by any, any non-professional. Um, and I think a lot of people may have the knee-jerk reaction, even maybe some professionals, you know, why keep that FLP alive if the discounts are no longer relevant? What's the point of it? I didn't have in the outline of the materials, but just thought of the point that if you've set up an entity and made gifts last year, I sure wouldn't dissolve it now because you think it's not necessary if you claim discounts on a 2012 gift tax return you haven't even filed yet. But I think more than that, taxpayers should be cautioned not to dissolve or unwind or unravel any of this planning yet because there's still a host of potential benefits. Uh, FLPs and LLCs can be a phenomenal tool for controlling assets, protecting assets from creditors, uh, providing another measure of protection from irresponsible heirs. So if you, if you had an old-style trust that was paying out a third of the money, say, to ages 25, 30, and 35, if those assets were coming out in the format of being an FLP or LLC interest, even when the distribution was required, the child wouldn't necessarily have cash they could use for inappropriate purposes. So the fact that there may no longer be a tax, a state, federal estate tax benefit to a client of a taxpayer of having an FLP or an LLC is not a reason to dissolve or liquidate the entity. All the other benefits still remain. Now, let's take a look in the new paradigm. And I haven't summarized, but I'm sure everybody on the call, taxpayers as well as professionals, is familiar with the fact that uh, the marginal in income tax rates have increased. There's a 3.8% Medicare tax on passive investment income. Uh, capital gains rates for the higher earners are, are all higher. And there's new restrictions or uh, enhanced restrictions with the phase-out on itemized deductions. Having an FLP or LLC, it may be feasible within limits and using appropriate expenses, certainly, to shift some of the deductions that may no longer provide benefit from the taxpayer individually to the entity, certain investment-type expenses that may not provide any meaningful deduction as an itemized deduction may be deductible without that limitation on the entity if it's appropriate to uh, pay for them through the entity and deduct them there. Um, historically, if any, any, any of you on the call are, are old enough to remember, before uh, FLPs, and this was even before the days of LLCs, became uh, a, a vehicle for creating discounts for transfer tax purposes, uh, FLPs were used to shift income, and that's why Congress responded many years ago with Code Section 704E to have restrictions on when income could really be shifted, capital being a material income producing factor, and so on and so forth. But the point is we now have more gradation in the uh, marginal income tax rates than we've had in quite some time. And it may be feasible within certain limits to realize some benefits by having income through the use of gifts of partnership interest to, to lower income tax bracket family members to um, uh, gain some benefits that way. 
So sort of to summarize, FLPs and LLCs in most cases should not be dissolved. The fact that the discounts may no longer be needed by a client that, uh, say, a married couple with an $8 million estate, leaving aside state estate tax, does not mean that uh, there's not other uses and applications. Uh, itemized deductions, I've kind of already made the comments, but I, I think it's important to view that um, uh, or consider that taxpayers that reside in high-tax states that now are facing income taxes, state income taxes, high state property taxes, and so on, and may lose out on a significant portion of the income tax uh, benefit of those uh, out-of-pocket costs, uh, the inclination to move to a lower tax state may even be greater. So uh, just a thought. And obviously, if clients or taxpayers relocate from New York to Florida, for example, um, the, the, the locus of where their documents should be uh, signed, the, the state law that should be governing, and so on and so forth, all have to be considered in the estate planning process. And this is just one of so many different um, uh, areas where the uh, income tax uh, will affect the estate planning. Uh, Roth conversions have been expanded a bit, and that's something that may have some benefit for some. Um, now, for the vast majority of Americans that had been worried about an estate tax, so anyone that thought if we had a million-dollar exemption, they had an issue, and now with a, a $5 million inflation-adjusted exemption and permanent portability, uh, you know, you may now view that as $10.5 million with the, the uh, current inflation adjustments, and we'll talk about that this year. So anybody that is in that range where they worried about the estate tax previously, if we were going to have this year the million exemption, and now they're in a range where they're not worried about it, what do they need to do for planning? Asset protection is just one of the myriad of other things that estate planners have always helped clients with, taxpayers with, that has nothing necessarily to do with estate planning. So even if, in fact, uh, the taxpayer doesn't worry about estate tax, all the, 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 the machinations of whatever happens in Washington will do nothing to really limit the litigious nature of our society. So anybody with wealth or means certainly should continue to look at planning from an asset protection perspective. So when a client, uh, a taxpayer is frustrated, well, gee, why do I need this irrevocable trust? Why do I need this LLC? There, again, the knee-jerk reaction, let's get rid of the cost and complexity of dealing with this. I don't need it. It's not been and never was only about estate tax but about asset protection as well. And I think for the practitioners on the call, this is something that we have to give renewed focus to because uh, a divorce, a malpractice suit could devastate a, an estate far more significantly than an estate tax with a big exemption. So we have to help educate uh, taxpayers that these factors have to be considered as well. Certainly divorce protection is something that's very significant. Uh, having uh, outright gifts because they're simpler, which many clients love simpler, and we're going to talk about simple again, because I think that's going to be a new theme for lots of people far more than it's ever been, is, is very dangerous. An outright gift to a child who then uh, has a couple of payments here and there commingled with a spouse, and then there's a divorce, the entire uh, uh, inheritance or gift could be jeopardized. So again, regardless of whatever happens with the estate tax, many of the tools that we've all used for planning um, will continue to be relevant, but for different purposes. And that may change to some degree how we implement trust, what type of trust, and so on. Um, we've talked about some of the um, income tax implications earlier, but let's talk about some more. For a lot of people, the federal estate tax is irrelevant, and it will always be irrelevant given the permanent changes that we have. 
So if we have an irrelevant federal estate tax and we're not concerned about it, if we live in a decoupled state, New York, New Jersey, et cetera, as an example, there's over 20, what we're really comparing is potentially the estate tax savings on a state estate tax versus what might be now might be now a much higher cost on a capital gain, uh, especially with the uh, Medicare tax on passive investment income. So we're a taxpayer is contemplating making a gift to save state estate tax. The analysis has to be in part well. If I can save tax, I call it for discussion's sake a 12% state marginal estate tax rate level. But the capital gains cost that the heir is going to receive on that appreciated asset, if it has a carryover basis, the same basis of what I paid for it, is going to exceed that, then in fact the effort to save state estate tax may create a greater cost from a capital gains perspective. And that's something that needs to be thought about. So when the client is concerned, a taxpayer is concerned about asset protection, Whereas in the past, for that same taxpayer, the recommendation may have been a completed gift self-settled trust that would grow outside of their estate but permit the client, the taxpayer, access to those funds. Perhaps now it should be structured as an incomplete gift trust so that asset protection goals can be achieved, but on the same hand, those assets will be included in the client's estate for purposes of a basis step up on death. So again, new thought process. Let's, let's uh, touch quickly on another topic, and, and I think I've kind of addressed this, but I think it needs to be addressed more specifically, buyer's remorse. Uh, the reality is if somebody, and we'll use a simple example to illustrate, had a net worth of $4 million, was 85 years old, and lived in Florida where there's no estate tax, and said, gee, if the exemption goes from uh, $5.12 uh, million in 2012 down to the, the, the small $1 million level, uh, I'm going to have a $3 million taxable estate. My kids could lose a million and a half plus. I better do some aggressive planning. That person may very well now feel, gee, why did I go through all that? Now I could have just kept the money, had a full step up in basis. I've lost the, the step up, so I'm, I'm actually saddling my kids with a greater capital gains tax cost, which may now be at a higher rate, and I didn't need to do anything because the exemption stayed the same. Um, what can be done? First, for an awful lot of taxpayers that engaged in planning, that wasn't the right analysis. It may have been done because even if the exemption stayed at $5 million, in this example, because they lived in New Jersey, which has only a $675,000 exemption, the savings in state-to-state tax may have made this planning worthwhile. So I think it's important before anybody starts to be remorseful over, gee, why did I do all this, that they look at the whole picture of what they've done. Uh, and I think that some uh, taxpayers are just going to feel bad because why did I go through this? Gee, the law is the same. The law is not the same, and we're going to talk about that, especially for the very wealthy. Now, inflation risk. One attitude may be, you know, if my estate is close to $5 million, why am I concerned about all this? I, I, I don't need to deal with this because even the exemptions, inflation adjusted. But I think people also need, especially if they're feeling like, gee, why did I go through some of this planning last year, or why would I engage in more planning this year, and look at what the inflation-adjusted exemption really means. What is the asset base that you have, and what might inflation do to your asset base is compared to this sort of general inflation adjustment on the exemption amount. So if you own a family business that is growing at 15% a year, uh, that's going to far outstrip whatever inflation adjustment on the $5 million exemption. If you made gifts last year 
that had uh, let's call it valuation assumption, and let's say that there was a discount of 30 plus percent on a gift of an interest in an S corp or an LLC that owned a family business or real estate uh, investment property. You know, to unravel that kind of uh, gift, even if you could, is that really practical or appropriate? Because those discounts may no longer be available if Congress changes the law yet again. So before somebody starts to think about, gee, maybe I should unravel it, the inflation risk still exists even though the exemption is inflation adjusted. I know for some people the fact that it's inflation adjusted, they're going to dismiss all of that. But again, I think that's a very dangerous assumption. Uh, the stock market has historically grown faster than inflation. Gee, that's why we've all had an allocation to equities in our stock in our investment portfolio. That's the whole point of it. So if a taxpayer has a significant portion of their investment allocation to equities, the odds are that maybe over enough time, especially as life expectancy increases and depending on the age of the uh, the taxpayer involved, uh, if they're at a four and a half million or five million dollar level, it may only be a question of how many years before their portfolio overtakes the five million dollar exemption. Um, again, while practitioners might tell clients that are concerned about, uh, gee, why did I do planning in 2012? Uh, is it really permanent? You never know what the fickle winds in, in Washington may, may do. Um, I don't think too many consumers are going to buy that anymore. Question, uh, comment, concern. If you find a way that you can unravel a 2012 transfer, even if you can, does that unraveled transfer still have to be reported on a gift tax return? Is it somehow a non-transfer that can avoid reporting? I think there's a lot of serious questions if that's going to happen. If a client, a, a taxpayer, is concerned about setting up a spousal access trust or a self-settled asset protection trust uh, in 2012, one of the ways to, to lessen the commitment to that plan if they're feeling uncomfortable is simply to make distributions uh, and try to maximize the distributions out of the trust so that the taxpayer can see uh, what's there and hopefully also find a means of reducing the amount of assets that are still still subject to the plan. But I think in reality, if, if, if a taxpayer is feeling, uh, call it buyer's remorse again, over 2012 gift trust that they set up, even after all the other things that I've said that still may make that trust incredibly valuable to them, the fact that they realize they can get a distribution out when they need it may be sufficient to let them sit tight and let the, the trust play out and, and serve all the other purposes, even if it doesn't provide a significant estate uh, tax planning benefit. Now, there's another approach, too, that could be used. Let's say a client put in, a taxpayer put in an interest in a family-held business into a trust and is now feeling, you know, I really wanted that business there if we we're going to have a, even a $3.5 million exemption, but with $5 million in portability and inflation adjustments and for my spouse and I, it's now ten and a half million in 2013. I don't need that much appreciation in the trust. I'd rather have some of those earnings attributable to that business I gifted to the trust in my hands, so I can spend some of it. Well, if you gave five million dollars worth of LLC interest in a real estate LLC, and now because your estate's at eight million for a married couple, and you're not as concerned because you're in your call it mid 80s, maybe what you do is you borrow back half of those LLC interests as an example, for a note, you give a note to the trust, you borrow it back, and you pay interest to the trust at the current very low rate for uh, under a nine-year note. I think it's about 1%, give or take. So a very modest rate of interest. And now the earnings from part of those LLCs, half in our hypothetical, are now back in your hand. So even if somebody's feeling concerned about the 2012 planning, there's a myriad of different ways to reassure the taxpayer 
There's a myriad of different ways that you can kind of readjust and work with it. Um, another approach, which is not here, is um, you could use the swap power in the reverse way that most people have talked about it. So for example, uh, at the end of 2012, many people had to put cash into a trust. And one of the techniques that uh, many uh, practitioners used to um, gain grant or trust status was in order to um, um, get to give the, the taxpayer, the grantor, the donor, the right to swap assets into the trust. So if you put cash in last year, because you couldn't get an appraisal done, you couldn't get a lender's approval in time or some third-party contractual right approval that you needed to transfer it in, you could have put cash in, and now this year in January, swap the assets and put in the business interest once you got your approval or your appraisal and pull out the cash. Well, you could do the reverse. So if, the, if, if you as the taxpayer are feeling uh, buyer's remorse and, gee, I don't want all my business interest there, Um, what you could do is swap in cash and pull out part of the business. So it's the reverse of what a lot of people are talking about. But if you as the taxpayer are feeling, gee, I don't need as much growth in the trust, but I kind of want to keep intact a lot of the ideas, you can do the opposite and swap out cash for that. Okay. So that's the end of buyer's remorse. And now let me summarize again what I think is sort of a new paradigm for planning under the new law. And this is something I said earlier, so I can go through it fairly quickly and we can jump into it. I really think that, that the only way to look at the new law is to sort of evaluate it, or one of the ways to look at it is to break it down into three categories of taxpayers. Because I think the planning and the way we handle things and the planning that you as a taxpayer would want are going to be very different depending which category you're in. So let's do the two polar categories, which I think the, the, the prime category that includes the vast majority of, of even wealthy people, and I've used the term moderate wealth, and uh, maybe moderate should be in quotes because if you're a married couple with $8 million, uh, you know, compared to the vast majority of the, the world's population, it's hardly moderate. It's pretty, pretty substantial wealth. But relative to the exemption amounts, let's call it moderate. In the moderate wealth category, estate planning remains as vital as it ever did. The problem, the challenge is that taxpayers in that moderate category, for the most part, are really not going to care one iota about a federal estate tax because it doesn't apply. And for practitioners that are saying that, gee, uh, this is no different than the exemption we had in 2010, I think the permanency is psychologically a huge difference. For moderate wealth clients, everything that you have in place today needs to be looked at. And it may need to be looked at because we may be able to simplify it, make it less costly, less difficult to operate, and still meet goals. But obviously, I think all the discussion that we had earlier about asset protection, divorce protection, potential for inflation, all those things need to be considered. But you really need to evaluate everything, and we're going to talk about that. As a comment towards the practitioners on the call, for a moderate wealthy client, I think it's going to be an incredible uh, educational process that's going to be necessary to help these taxpayers, these clients understand you still need the vast majority of things that we as professionals did for you, it's just not going to have the same federal estate tax relevance. But everything else that we did from succession planning to dealing with family, uh, intra-family uh, squabbles and issues and trying to minimize the, the, the potential uh, will challenges or, or family fights, all these things are just as relevant. It's just not going to have the tax driver. It's going to be an incredible education process because I think the knee-jerk reaction of many, many taxpayers 
consumers will be, gee, why don't I go to LegalZoom and get a simple will? I don't have a tax problem, especially for those not living in a decoupled state where they have a significant state estate tax. So that's one category, and I think that will be the largest category, and I think that has profound implications to both the uh, taxpayer and the advisor alike. The, the bottom category, which is the high net worth client, and high net worth is, is being defined in terms, again, of the exemption amount. So if you have a married couple with a $12 million estate relative to the exemption amount, I'm calling that high net worth because they certainly should plan. And the planning for the high net worth client so far will be as it was before. I mean, the so far is we have more fiscal cliff issues coming, more negotiations in Washington, and it very well may be that an awful lot of the uh, restrictions that could be really dire for those of the high net worth uh, category may yet be enacted. So we'll talk about that in a couple minutes. And then there's the category in between. And the category in between I've referred to, for lack of a better term, is potentially high net worth. Those are people that uh, live in a decoupled state, New York, New Jersey, were the examples we've used. So they face a potentially significant state e-state tax, and we need to talk about that because that can't be dismissed. But I think even for many of those clients, taxpayers, that face a significant state e-state tax, given that the marginal state estate tax rate is so dramatically lower than the federal estate tax rate, I believe that many of these taxpayers will still demand more simplicity, less cost, and less involved planning in order to accomplish their goals. However, I think if we can educate those taxpayers as to a better mousetrap that in this new, let's call it no federal, unlikely federal estate tax environment that affects them, there may be better, better ways to plan that may be more palatable. And I want to talk about that. And I had said earlier that I'm not sure the bypass trust is, is, is the pat answer of, 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 uh, for appropriate planning is the paradigm for a lot of these people. And we're going to talk about that. So state-to-state tax is important. Now, um, when we get into it, and I may as well just do it now, for the potentially high net worth client, I think a lot of the people in that category will really either be treated as moderate wealth or high net worth. So for example, if you have uh, an entrepreneur in his or her 40s that's got a $9 million estate, even though that may be math, you know, based on the number of potentially high net worth client, they're young, they have growing assets, uh, asset base, certainly that kind of planning should be done for that type of client, that type of taxpayer, as if they were high net worth. On the other hand, if you have somebody in their mid-80s uh, that has a $4 million estate and is single, it, it's probably unlikely that their estate's going to ever grow high enough to trigger an estate tax. So other than addressing state estate tax, I would put them in the potentially high net worth category and maybe even plan for that person is moderate wealthy. So I think the actual number of in-between people, if you will, is going to be fairly modest. And I don't think estate planning has ever, maybe in history, been so polarized or so specialized. So what makes sense for someone that might face a federal estate tax could be dramatically more sophisticated, costly, and complicated than for the vast majority of other wealthy people that would most likely never face a federal estate tax. Um, so I, I think it's important to evaluate very carefully, uh, especially for professionals and even as consumers, what, what we as professionals offer and as consumers or taxpayers, what we want. And again, without the fear of a federal estate tax, will we want uh, the complexity of what we had incurred before? And I think the answer for an awful lot of taxpayers is going to be absolutely not. I want the KISS principle. I want it simpler. I want it lower cost. 
I don't want to incur the complexity. While I was willing to put up with all sorts of trust and complexities and costs when I feared that I could lose 30, 40, 50% of my net worth at the end, that was one thing. But now where most I'm going to lose is either nothing or a state-of-state tax, I may not be uh, comfortable or willing to put up with that. So let's talk more about these moderate wealth taxpayers. Again, and I'm sorry to repeat it, but I think this is such a major factor. The fear factor is gone. When we had a sunset provision where no practitioner could tell a taxpayer, yes, this is the exemption amount, it'll never go lower. We never could say that. Everybody had in the back of their mind, however small of a percentage that they put on it, but every taxpayer and every professional advisor had somewhere in the back of their mind there is still some potential up until New Year's Eve that we could have had, and even maybe a little after New Year's Eve, we could have had a million-dollar exemption and a 55% rate. Those fears are gone. So that's no longer going to not only motivate a moderate wealth taxpayer, and again, moderate wealth could be a 9 or $10 million estate to come plan, but I think it's no longer going to justify that type of taxpayer accepting some of the costs and complexity that we had. Again, we as professionals have to help educate the uh, taxpayer, the consumer, as to the myriad of other benefits, whether it's insurance, retirement planning, succession planning. Now income tax planning is even more significant given the higher rates. We have to help educate the, the, the customer, the consumer, as to why these other benefits still make planning worthwhile. And I think as professionals, part of the fault here is ours because the tax driver, gee, you could lose half your estate, give or take, to estate taxes, is always so powerful that many of us did not really go further in educating clients as to the, the relative importance of all these other things. And I don't think it takes uh, much to understand that asset protection, divorce protection, making sure there's adequate resources for retirement and so on is critically more important for most taxpayers and always was. And I think most professionals knew that, but even if we discussed it, did we give the, the, the same weighting to that? Taxpayers, uh, clients in the moderate wealth category have to reevaluate all their plans and documents. I think they need to reevaluate how their wills and rev trusts work based on this new permanent $5 million exemption. Consideration also needs to be given to the inflation indexing. The, the figure uh, uh, last year in 2012 was 5120 the numbers that I've seen is that there's a $130,000 increase to five and a quarter million dollars for 2013. And given such a large base of five million, it doesn't take a very significant level of inflation to make a significant annual adjustment. So in the past, when we planned on how an estate would be distributed, the inflation adjustment, even in a fairly low inflationary environment like we have today, to go up from five million to five and a quarter million is a pretty hefty jump. And if inflation kicks back up, the jumps and increases in the exemption is something that's going to be a new thought that we'll all have to plan for. And it's a new way to perhaps think through what happens with planning. Um, I believe that an awful lot of the moderate wealth taxpayers did not come in for the significant 2012 planning. Many, many people of means were really fence-sitters saying, I don't want to spend the money and go through the hassle of updating all my planning and documents until I know what the law is. Well, now they know what the law is. And I think there are lots and lots of taxpayers out there that have not updated their documents in five and sometimes ten or longer years because they were just waiting for something that seemed certain. Now they have it. So I think there's an incredible amount of business that needs to be done and an incredible number of taxpayers that need help, but we have to um, help them understand how to go about it and why they need more. 
Title to assets has changed. In the past, the general advice was split assets 50-50 if you had a married couple, so that, in fact, um, either of them, whoever died first, could fund a bypass trust to save estate tax. That may no longer be relevant with portability. Um, if one of the, the married couple uh, used their exemption last year or most of it, perhaps you need to, to put most of the assets in the other's name. Powers of attorney need to be updated. Plenty of old standard forms out there even have the old $10,000 amount. Some of them don't have, a lot of them don't have uh, automatic inflation adjustment, and the exemption amount for annual gifts this year is 14000 For a moderate wealth taxpayer, that's a huge part of what they may use for planning. Uh, bypass trust, I think some discussion has to be had about that and when it makes sense, and we'll try to go through that in a few minutes. Um, the moderate wealth taxpayer that had bought life insurance to pay an estate tax may never need it for that purpose. But before they go and get rid of it, they should evaluate whether it can serve really a scaled-down uh, similar purpose in paying a state-of-state tax uh, if they live in a decoupled state. Uh, but in the new paradigm that we have with such greater income taxes, it may very well be that a, a permanent insurance policy with the cash-free buildup, the tax-free buildup rather, inside of the policy may be a very enticing income tax benefit. So it may very well turn out that, that what was purchased from an estate planning perspective to pay an estate tax may now be an optimal tool to help address the new higher income tax rates. It may be the same policy. It may be a, a new policy that's, that's uh, traded into, but uh, that should all be evaluated. With the recession and the, the, the impact on the market and investments, for many uh, consumers and taxpayers, uh, insurance may now be viewed as a, there's been a lot of discussion of insurance as an asset class. Certainly can provide a ballast to some of the other investments that taxpayers may now view as less secure after what we've had. So insurance which may have been used earlier to pay an estate tax, may still make an awful lot of sense for different reasons today, but the decision path to get to the same result may be different, and I think that's something that's important to address. Uh, Pension-owned life insurance. Lots of professionals always caution clients, don't have an insurance policy inside of a pension plan because it's in your taxable estate. Well, now with a $10.5 million exemption amount with portability for a married couple, and, and now with higher income tax rates, high-income tax taxpayers that are of moderate wealth relative to the new exemption, owning life insurance or buying their insurance inside a pension plan may be the, 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 the way to go. So this could be a dramatic change in how we handle insurance and planning. Uh, insurance trust. Taxpayers, consumers have always found it incredibly frustrating to deal with crummy powers and separate bank accounts. While that's simple stuff for advisors, it's always been a frustration and a headache for consumers. Well, what do you need to do now? Well, if your estate is well under, including the insurance, the $10 million exemption level or the $5 million if you're single, do you really need to have those crummy powers? I'm not sure somebody would willingly draft an insurance trust without them, but I think we need to have that discussion. So if you don't have a crummy power, there's no annual gift. You're going to use up some of your exemption. And if you project forward for enough years, and even with all that, there's still no estate tax, and the client doesn't live, the taxpayer doesn't live in a decoupled state, or even if they do, they may not care, Maybe they don't want to deal with it. So I think we need to evaluate how we can scale back planning that we've traditionally done, where and when a client wants it, for the sake of lower cost and more simplicity. If you have an insurance trust and you do a one-time crummy power uh, and have the beneficiaries acknowledge that they'll be verbally informed and they're aware of it and they waive any right to further notice, and it's structured that way, perhaps as a practitioner you're going to have the client sign off acknowledging that you don't think that works and that's not the way to go, but maybe that's sort of a better solution than drafting a trust with no crummy power. 
And for a client that says, gee, now I don't have to deal with crummy powers, I don't have to go back to my lawyer's office to deal with an annual review in crummy powers and make sure I do it, maybe that's the approach the client will choose. It's simpler, it's cheaper, it's easier, and in the end, it may not make any difference. Um, not so many years ago, a very common planning tool was just to simply make annual gifts to kids of interest in a family business, an S-Corp. Maybe in today's age, it would be interest in a family holding company, an LLC. I know there's issues with discounts and values and everything else, but how will the moderate wealth client worry about that if they really don't believe they'll ever be subject to estate tax? And if they want to plan, maybe simple annual gifts is all they need to do. And if they already have a family LLC that was set up before, maybe just continuing that will be fine. Uh, powers of attorney, we've already talked about the need to update them. And here's another thought on updating powers of attorney for the moderate wealth client. One of the approaches we're going to talk about is in lieu of using a bypass trust, and I'm not saying not to have uh, the, the provision in a will or a rev trust, but in lieu of relying on it, a far better approach for many people will be to set up a spousal lifetime access trust today rather than a bypass trust. And in, in short, a bypass trust in a state, let's say like New Jersey, is really going to typically be capped at the state exemption, which is only $675,000. Because New Jersey doesn't have a gift tax, if you set up, set up a spousal lifetime access trust today, you can put far more in it and for the same effort post-death of administering one irrevocable trust, a bypass trust versus a SLAT, you may very well be able to save far, far more state-to-state -state tax. In fact, one of the planning paradigms, and we'll come to it in a minute, is to set up um, non-reciprocal SLATs so the husband and wife could each set up these trusts today, and they could actually gift to the trust if they're getting on in years uh, enough assets that they've basically reduced what they have left in their names to getting closer to what the exemption amounts are. Um, cuprates. If a client that's worth, call it a married couple, six, seven million dollars set up a house trust years ago when we had a two million dollar exemption, certainly may have made some sense. It was shifting a value of a house at a very reduced cost out of their estate, and they could now be in maybe the sixth or the eighth or ninth year of that trust. What happens? Well, our old standard advice that every practitioner would have told the client is when that cuprit term ends, the house trust term ends, and your right to live for free in the house that you retained that got you the tax discount is over, you're going to transfer the house from the cuprit to either a remainder trust or the kids, depending on what the trust provided for. And I know everyone likes grantor trust, but whatever the trust provided for, sign a written lease, get an appraisal or at least a letter from a local broker what the fair rent is, sign an arm's length lease and pay rent. And that way the parents could pay rent and remain in the home. But the result of that is that the home was shifted out of the estate, which is exactly what we hope to accomplish. But the cuprit, this house trust that was set up five, six years ago, when we had a very different perspective on the estate tax, for that client today, it may be the, the worst result. Now there's no step up in basis. And it's out of the estate, but to what avail? There's no, no tax benefit. Perhaps, again, ignoring state-estate tax, the approach is the exact opposite, a little Alice in Wonderland planning. Maybe what we tell the client now to do, maybe what you as a taxpayer do, is you intentionally don't rent the house. You continue to live in it. Well, we would caution you in the normal environment that, gee, that's going to create a estate tax inclusion issue. But, gee, maybe that's exactly what you want. And then maybe the position the taxpayer takes or the the, the, the uh, family takes on the estate tax return is that that was included in the estate. They get a step up in tax basis for the interest in the house, and who cares that it's in the estate? There's no estate tax because of portability and a $5 million inflation adjusted exemption. So this is an example of how planning for a moderate wealth client could be completely turned on its head with a new paradigm. And I think what that means is that 
everybody that's in what I'm now referring to as the moderate wealth taxpayer category, who will never be subject in their realistic view to a federal estate tax, needs to rethink all the existing planning. And maybe some of it can be unraveled in ways that will simplify, reduce cost, and actually give a better overall tax result when you consider income and the estate tax they won't be paying. Again, not true in all cases. There's lots of other issues we haven't talked about. But the bottom line is planning can be very, very different for the moderate wealth taxpayer. And I think it's critical that everybody in that category meet with their advisors and that we as advisors start thinking out of the box of what does all this mean now with this new environment that we face. Now let's talk about the in-between category of potentially high net worth taxpayers and those in decoupled states. What do you do for these folks? Um, we may continue a few minutes, but I'll try to end close to the amount of time uh, at, at noon. But I may go on for a few minutes. Uh, I apologize. Um, these are taxpayers that are not necessarily ensnared by the estate tax, the federal estate tax, but perhaps might. And the example I gave earlier was an uh, entrepreneur in his 40s or 50s where he or she had a closely held business that was growing substantially. And if they had an 8 or $9 million estate today, they very likely are going to end up uh, being in a high net worth category where they will pay an estate tax. And those would be planned no differently than the high net worth taxpayers we're going to talk about in a couple minutes. The others, say somebody in, in their 80s or 90s that has a portable exemption amount, may never face an estate tax. And if they're not in a decoupled state so they don't face state estate tax, you would plan for them exactly as we just discussed for a moderate, is what we're calling moderate wealth taxpayer. And again, moderate wealth defined relative to the exemption amounts. So there will be some people in sort of this ill-defined middle category, but I think many of them will actually, upon a bit of examination, end up in one of the other two categories. Um, what do you do for these clients? I think life insurance may become the, the, the tool of choice, and I don't sell insurance, but where somebody doesn't want to really incur the cost and complexity of GRATS and DAPS and SLATS and all the other great acronyms, for whatever reason, clients, taxpayers have always found setting up an insurance policy and an insurance trust to be a lot simpler than a lot of the other more sophisticated planning. So if somebody has some concern that they may be subject to an estate tax, but may not be, that may be the simple answer. And if they already have existing insurance, so all you're doing is tweaking existing planning all the easier. Um, and the insurance, in light of our higher income tax rates and the 3.8% Medicare tax and so on and so forth, permanent insurance may become a, 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 a far more favored uh, in not only investment tool, if you will, but planning tool in general. So getting a permanent insurance policy, say, on one spouse's life, where the other spouse could access it, now we're back to the SLAT, the Spousal Lifetime Access Trust, uh, could in fact become the, the ultimate plan for, for people on the in-between the two categories. Um, you know, not so long ago, somebody with an estate approaching $10 million would have been panicking, like last month, a couple weeks ago, to do planning, whereas right now they may feel the exact opposite, gee, I don't have a worry in the world. But maybe if you really question them, there is some concern, and I think an insurance trust could be a, an optimal tool for many of these people, bypass trust. The, the standard old planning advice has always been set up a bypass trust. We've all done it. But that kind of planning, I think, and, and I know I'm going a little out on the limb, but that kind of planning was really developed when we had a million-dollar gift exemption. And I think that over the last few years when we had this $5 million gift exemption for the first time in history, something anywhere near that big, that the focus on planning was for higher net worth clients to shift big chunks of wealth out of their estate. But I think that permanent, and that's the key difference, permanent high gift exemption is what makes us 
want to rethink to some degree our reliance on a bypass drug. Now, I'm not saying don't put one in a wheel just in case, but that's not really necessarily the optimal plan. And the, uh, the typical not so long ago, like last year, plan was to have for a typical estate a bypass trust, so an amount either up to the federal exemption or if you lived in a decoupled state, the, the state exemption amount could be set aside where it won't be in the surviving spouse's estate, everything else in a marital trust to where you could then allocate uh, GST exemption. I think now a lot of taxpayers are going to feel, gee, with portability, why bother? And I'm not going to go through the whole discussion, but I think it's certainly a very important one of trying to figure out when portability versus having assets in a trust makes sense. And given the new high income tax rates and the Medicare tax on passive investment income, depending on the assumptions and the analysis, the rates of appreciation, the assumed tax rates of the heirs, you could have different results. But I think in some cases, you may achieve a better result on the InterVivo flat, a lifetime spousal access trust. And if that sounds complicated for a consumer, it may not be a lot different than a tweak on an existing insurance trust or the, the, the planning idea that many uh, consumers are familiar with of using an insurance trust. Um, is the bypass trust really worth it? If the most you're going to save is the state the state tax on a million dollars because you're living in a decoupled state where that's the max you can put in without a tax on the first death, is the cost and hassle factor really worth it? Maybe it's worth spending a little bit more money up front in setting up a trust today to grow assets permanently outside of the estate that you can still access should you need to. When you think about it, what does a bypass trust really do? When I die at this difficult emotional time, my wife will now have to deal with all the complexity of getting this trust set up. It's going to be difficult for her. And in the end of the day, if we have an $8 million estate and are never going to pay a federal estate tax, what have we saved for it? At most, a million dollars at whatever the marginal state tax rate is. Now, if it's call it a 12% marginal state tax rate, 100 grand even, not, not an insignificant sum of money. But if I set up a spousal lifetime access trust today, I could even put in a half a million today. But because I know the 5 million, or I'm going to assume the 5 million gift exemption is permanent, I can add to that next year. And when I hit age 80, maybe I'll put another million in. So the time I die, I may have several million dollars for years in this trust, and I've now, for having, again, just one irrevocable trust my wife has to deal with, I have doubled or tripled the amount of money that I have outside of the state transfer tax system. And that's the concept of why I said earlier that for many people except Connecticut that has a gift tax, you really can almost make state a state tax for the vast majority of even moderate wealthy clients. And I understand moderate wealth is pretty wealthy with a $10.5 million exemption that keeps growing up uh, each year by inflation. You really can almost make, for the vast majority of people, state-to-state tax be totally optional. And it's for the same trust. And if you go a step further, if you seize on the comment I made earlier about the benefits of insurance, the same insurance trust that could be set up maybe with a few tweaks could be that same flat spousal lifetime access trust that serves a dual purpose of holding the life insurance that provides an income tax benefit and addresses for the, the potentially high net worth client the possibility of a federal estate tax into which they can use as a gifting trust to make gifts and reduce much more significantly or eliminate the state estate tax. And I think that that's something that even though, it, yes, it's a little bit more complexity, that's something that does offer a tremendous opportunity and far more creativity for a lot of clients. Now, I'm contradicting myself because I said earlier that many clients, and I spoke primarily the moderate wealth clients, 
uh, are going to want the KISS principle, simpler, less costly. I think the potentially high net worth client, not only because they have much greater wealth, but have some risk of either a significant state estate tax or potential of a federal estate tax, should be willing to accept some degree of additional cost or complexity because the benefits can still be dollarized as being very significant of what they'll save on state estate tax alone. And that's in addition to all the asset protection, divorce protection, and other benefits potentially. Now, when a spousal lifetime access trust is done, you can almost look at it as a continuum. On the, the, the most sophisticated end, you could set up a, a trust in, in, in Alaska with an institutional trustee and have it as a directed trust. It could be a grantor trust so you have income tax burn. You could have GST exemption allocated. And you could have a fairly sophisticated, very robust, powerful planning tool. And that's great when it's worthwhile. But you could take the same concept and scale it down if the client, the taxpayer, likes the idea of the planning because the potential for state tax savings is more significant. You could do a home state trust, have Uncle Joe as a trustee. You could even give the spouse to be a co-trustee with Uncle Joe and let him or her in their capacity as a trustee, the spouse, have an ascertainable withdrawal standard. In other words, they could withdraw money to maintain their own standard of living. You could set up a very scaled-down version of the trust where you don't need an institution, you don't need the institutional trustee fees, you don't need the sophistication and complexity of a directed trust, and so on and so forth. So you can do a scaled-down version of this that's a lot simpler and a lot less costly. And I think the best way for a consumer or taxpayer to evaluate it, and for us as professionals to present it to them, is to show them the continuum of where they can go when they want to create something like this in terms of not only complexity, and benefits, but cost, and then let the consumer make a choice as to which way they want to go. But I think that given the, 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 this new concept of a permanent gift exemption, this is a great way to do it. Um, one of the things, and I'll go through it very quickly, so if I set up a, a flat for my wife, what if she dies before me? There's risks, questions, issues as to whether I can give my wife a broad, what's called limited power of appointment, where she could theoretically appoint the trust back to me. Uh, certainly, if you're in a state like Alaska, Delaware, South Dakota, Nevada, where you can set up a self-settled trust, and there's a number of other states that permit it, there may be less risk with that. Certainly, if you're doing it in a state that does not permit self-settled trust, you may have a risk of creditors getting at the estate and hence having it included similarly in, in the taxable estate. But the point is, these are all decision processes that the taxpayer, the consumer, can make as to how much risk of premature death of the spouse they're willing to put up with versus how much tax risk they want for other certainty. And then the trade-off could be, so go to a state where it's not necessarily an issue. You can also use this kind of slat as a wait-and-see approach. So all right, I don't really know what the future is. I, I, I get the idea that I'd rather set up a trust and test drive it today rather than have my, my uh, widow on, on my death have to deal with all this complexity. I get that I can put a lot more money into this trust and not only potentially save state-to-state -state tax, but it'll probably keep me assuredly below the federal threshold if my, my estate starts to grow. I could put a half a million dollars into a local state um, uh, flat with Uncle Joe as the trustee and under my power of attorney authorize my agent to fund it further as I get on in years. We may want to revise powers of attorney where we have a client with this type of plan and authorize the agent to transfer uh, up to the remaining exemption amount into a flat. And that doesn't have the risk of sort of these generic broad go make a gift. It really is fairly specific where it's authorized. And that can facilitate the plan. So a taxpayer could conceivably set up a flat today, and as they get on in years, fund it themselves. If they become incapacitated, their agent could fund it. 
and create a far greater savings on a state level with a little creative twist on nothing more than the old insurance trust. Let's talk very briefly before we wrap up on high net worth taxpayers. Um, I think the majority of high net worth taxpayers probably believe that after whatever they suffered through with all the sophisticated planning rushed and, and stress-filled at the end of 2012 that they're done and who wants to think of this again? It wasn't a fun process. I think they need to be educated that we have more fiscal cliffs coming. And if you're a taxpayer that's done some planning last year, what you really should look at is this new tax bill, the American Taxpayer Relief Act is having done, is provided a grace period, a sort of relief period to the um, uh, December 31 deadline. You have another bite at the apple, which in life we often don't get. It's very plausible that um, in the next set of fiscal cliff negotiations, a lot of the provisions that Obama, President Obama had proposed in his Green Book, uh, and, and, and others have actually proposed and brought bills before Congress on restricting valuation discounts, restriction of grants, restriction of GST allocations, grant or trust, a whole range of very uh, esoteric tax benefits that mean a world of planning benefit to the very wealthy. These things could all disappear. So I think it behooves every really high net worth taxpayer that absolutely knows they're going to still be subject to the estate tax to jump on these opportunities and do as much planning as they can before these other benefits are taken away. I think there's also uh, important to note that for a high net worth taxpayer, 15 million, 20 million, 50 million and up, whether the exemption was 3.5 million proposed by President Obama and the rate was 45%, or now we have 5 million and 40%, 5 million to 3.5 million if your estate's worth $50 million is, is not significant in any event. And a 40% rate, while a lot nicer than 55% and certainly even better than the 45% President Obama had originally proposed, 40% is still a significant tax rate that can decimate a real estate empire, a family business, and so on. So the very wealthy really need to plan, and this is a bonus that they've been given with this new tax bill, and they should jump on it. There's an interesting statistic that's not in the article handout materials that I put on the PowerPoint that I thought of this morning. I remember reading a number of years ago, and I don't remember how many, that something like 5% of the estates were responsible for 50% of the estate tax. And I, 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 I'm confident that that was true. I just don't remember how long ago. The interesting thought is that whether the exemption was at 2 million or 5 million, the vast majority of the estate tax always came from a very small percentage of the various, very wealthiest estates. And I think that's an important lesson for the very high net worth to take to heart because they need to plan now. If, in fact, what Obama, President Obama is able to do in the next fiscal cliff negotiation is eliminate grantor trusts being outside of your estate and discounts and so on and so forth, they could conceivably raise in the federal government a very significant uh, percentage of what always had been raised from the estate tax, even with this new high $5 million exemption. So one thing for net high net worth taxpayers to do is top off your 2004 planning. Frequently, commonly, a lot of taxpayers, when they got an appraisal, an estimate in um, what their real estate business or operating company was worth when they were making gifts, they may have, let's say, made a gift of 4.8 million uh, and not the 5.12 million. So you have a, a $320,000 um, uh, leftover, if you will, from last year you could still fund to the trust. And now with the 130,000 additional gift this year that you can make because of the inflation adjustment of the exemption amounts of five and a quarter million, uh, a, a lot of wealthy taxpayers could put almost another half a million dollars in these trusts. Do it now. I didn't have in the outline, but here are the following. If President Obama's wish list goes through, and you can't allocate GST exemption permanently and grant or trust status 
is, is not the same so that if you make a gift to a trust, it's now tainted and all included in your estate. If you want to make the gift of 450 after those changes, you'd have to either set up a new trust or have a subtrust on your existing trust to isolate that because you don't want to commingle um, GST exempt that's forever exempt. So you set up a trust in Delaware which has a, a perpetual, uh, uh, you can have a trust go on in perpetuity so your trust is exempt forever. And now you make a post, let's say the next fiscal cliff, uh, gift of 450000 and you can only allocate GST exemption under that new change for 90 years, you have to have a separate subtrust to account for that. So it really behooves anyone to top off their trust now. The other thing that I think is even more critical, lots of taxpayers, very, very wealthy taxpayers, may have completed gifts last year and not done note sale transactions, or if they did note sale transactions, only did it for some of their assets, before discounts and, GS and all these other changes and grantor trust might be changed, use this opportunity to jump on it and complete new note sale or other gift transactions now. And the bonus is if you set up the trust last year, you don't have to set up a new trust. The laws are the same. You don't need a new subtrust. If you did a gift in December and you're still waiting, as most uh, consumers are taxpayers, to get the appraisal, you can probably use the same appraisal if you get a gift or a sale rather done early in 2013, the same appraisal you did last year. So the cost and complexity of completing a much larger transaction now may be fairly modest compared to what it would have been uh, last year. Um, bypass trusts and title to assets, I think we need to rethink uh, what we're doing in this regard, uh, even leaving aside the discussion for the moderate, I'm sorry, the potentially high net worth taxpayer we had earlier. If husband made a gift of $5 million last year and wife didn't, or vice versa, you don't want to divide assets, as the knee-jerk reaction always had been between husband and wife 50-50. What you want to do is put assets in the estate of the spouse that didn't use their exemption so that they can fund it if they die first. A little different than what we had done in the past. Uh, insurance trusts, I think, make a world of sense to, to continue uh, because we don't know where things are going. For the high net worth taxpayer that does not have a trust that's set up for insurance, it may make sense to set one up now. Even if you just make a gift and don't make your insurance decisions today, get the trust set up so you can have potentially a grandfathered, uh, perpetually GST-exempt trust that's a grantor trust. All of that may not be possible in the future. A lot of the sophisticated trusts done in 2012 did not include crummy powers. Uh, it may make sense, especially at the $14,000 level with uh, whatever number of family members the client has, the taxpayer has, to set up a separate islet with crummy powers so you can use it to pay for insurance. And it very well may be that the SLAT or other trusts set up last year could, could serve as the insurance trust. You may want a separate trust. It just depends on the terms of the other trust and what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, GRATS, we had lots of conversations last year with people that had never used their exemption and they were trying to do GRATS and it really seems kind of pointless if you haven't used your exemption and locked in what we thought was potentially a disappearing grantor trust and per perpetual GST allocation. Well, GRATS may make sense to revisit now. So if you as a client made a, a taxpayer made a gift last year of $5 million to uh, a, a dynastic trust and you've locked that benefit in, you may want to top it off as we earlier discussed. But now may be a great time to go back and reconsider GRATS if you've already used up most of your exemption with uh, a more sophisticated planning. Uh, decanting, uh, just as a general comment real quick, for people that have old trusts that they may have been forced to make gifts into because they couldn't get a new trust set up in time, for those that have buyer's remorse, decanting or transferring an old or existing trust into a new trust can be a great way uh, to uh, address and resolve, and I've just given you the Alaska decanting statute for, for an illustration, 
some of the problems and, and issues that many people want to address. So to conclude, uh, we're a little past the top of the hour. We can conclude and wrap up. Uh, I think the 2012 Act completely changes the face of estate planning. And while it seems very similar to what we had in 2010, I think the permanency is going to have a huge psychological impact on taxpayers. Uh, I think few taxpayers numerically will care about federal estate tax whatsoever. State estate tax, given the large permanent gift exemption, now may become optional. Bypass trusts, I'm not saying not to use them, but they may no longer be as optimal as a planning approach, and I think more needs to be discussed. Life insurance uh, will continue to be very important for lots and lots of people, but I think it's going to take on a new perspective and new purposes. Uh, I think that the very wealthy should view uh, this as a grace period and jump on it before it disappears. Uh, for more information, I've posted uh, an article I wrote for Steve Leinberg that was distributed last night from Leinberg Services on Law Easy. I will post a recording of this webinar fairly soon. Uh, I put on the actual PowerPoint if you want that, and I actually put on just a Word document of the outline of the PowerPoint. Uh, all these documents will also be given to Steve Leinberg for Leinberg Services, and I would also suggest that a number of the different topics that we've talked about, there's a wealth of wonderful resources on, on, on Leinberg. And I'm not getting a commission. He's just a great guy. And, and many very bright people have written extensively already and will continue to write uh, about um, uh, the, the new tax bill on Leinberg. So if, if you're looking for access to really current information, uh, it's a great resource. Uh, thank all of you uh, very much for joining. Uh, if you have any comments, suggestions on how I can do a better job on the webinar, I'm going to do another one tomorrow at 4. Uh, Eastern Standard Time, please email me. My email address is on the screen, shankman at shankmanlaw.com. Uh, thank you for joining us, and thank you for participating. Bye-bye.